Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Amen. Hey, we're going to be in three areas of Scripture tonight as we continue our study. Joshua chapter 20, Joshua chapter 20, Habakkuk chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 6. Let me say those Scriptures again. You're going to see them on the screen behind me. Joshua chapter 20, Habakkuk. That is a book in the Bible. I'm not trying to trick you there. Habakkuk chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 6. And so we'll be in those three areas of Scripture tonight. I want to make sure that you've got a Bible uh, and so you can be able to follow along with us as well. I know you Thursday nighters, you are students of the Word of God. And so we've got a couple of points for you to be able to write down tonight. So if you want to take out your journals and your pens, that would be great as we learn how to glorify God tonight. Before we do that, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we're just asking that you would be glorified as we're here to learn and understand more of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for those that have gathered tonight, and I pray that you would bless them in abundance with the knowledge of who you are and the power of your Holy Spirit to live the life you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. Amen. There are things that God really cares about. There are things that God really cares about. And those things are so important to him that when we do them, we give him glory. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, you don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen. The Bible says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares about you. He cares for you. There are just some things that God really cares about. He cares about you. And the greatest display of his care for you was on the cross. You see, it was there that Jesus glorified the Father. That's what he says in John chapter 12. God be glorified. Because he cared about what the Father cares about, and the Father cares about you. And when you're concerned about something that the Father cares about, you actually give him glory. In fact, it's because of the cross that the church would announce in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. You did what your Father asked you to do. And honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You are worthy to receive glory. Let's talk about this term for just a minute. The term glory. You see, this term describes when we, like Jesus, care more about the things that God cares about than the things that we care about. Let me give an example. When a sinner repents, God is glorified because he really cares about people. It's John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. That's John 3, 16. You know it well. So if we're winning people 
for Christ and people are coming into the kingdom because of you, guess what? You're glorifying the Lord. That's what glorifying God is. But there's so many more things that glorify the Lord. There's so many more things that God cares about. And we get to learn those things in Scripture. So as we learn the things that God cares about in Scripture, we can put those things into practice in our lives. And when we learn them and live them, they give God glory. We give God glory. Now, Peter reminds us of something. You'll see it on the screen. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability with which God supplies. That in all things, all things, not some things, not a few things, that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. In other words, God alone is to be glorified. And he's not to be glorified in some things. He's to be glorified in all things. Why don't you say that with me? All things. Now, I know there are some things that we like to leave out of all things. And maybe you can define that in your own life. But God makes it very clear. It's Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. He will not share his glory with another. Let me tell you what God is trying to say. You don't get to decide how he's glorified. He gets to decide how he's glorified. He gets to decide what's important to him, not you. Now, not one of you said amen. And I believe it's because we're struggling with the very thing that we may be doing in our life that doesn't glorify him. But even in that thing, he says, I'm not going to share my glory. You can't give more glory to that simply because you care about it more. No, you must give glory to me the way that I think I'm to receive glory. Well, this was what John the Baptist describes better than anyone. In John chapter 3, verse 30, in speaking about Jesus, God's Son, he says, I must, he must increase, and I must say it. That gives God glory. You see, when we learn about him and his word to do his will, his way, that means less of us, more of him, that gives God's glory. God glory. Now, Jesus sums it up for us. It's at the end of his life, and Jesus knows that he's terminal. He knows that the next day he's going to die on the cross, and there in the upper room in John chapter 17, verse 4, he says this word in front of the disciples. He says this, I have glorified you on earth. Listen carefully. I finished the work which you've given me to do. He defines for us what glory is. It's doing what God cares about on earth. I've done the work that you've asked me to do. I knew your word, and I did your will, and I did your will your way. Now, we would be wise because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We would be wise to do the same. We'd be wise to come to the end of our days and say, I glorified you on earth, God. I did what you asked me to do. That's why it's important that we dig into Joshua 20. 
Because in Joshua 20, he's going to give us five things, five bits of insight of things that God really cares about. Things that give God glory. And our job is to learn God's word so that we can do God's will and we can do it God's way. So are you ready? Let's dig in to learn how we can give God glory. It's Joshua chapter 20. Now, I love Pastor Jeff. He gave me the chapter with nine verses, and he gets the chapter with 45 verses next week. So Joshua chapter 20, let's dig on in to these verses. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you, through Moses. And he spoke to him in Exodus 21. He spoke to him about cities of refuge in Numbers 35. He spoke to him of cities of refuge in Deuteronomy 19. And Moses spoke those things to Joshua, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. That's an important term. It's a Hebrew word that means ga'al. That's the Hebrew word, and it actually means the kinsman redeemer. Every family had one. Every Jewish family had a ga'al, a kinsman redeemer. Now, you may remember the most famous one in Scripture. His name was Boaz. And he was the kinsman redeemer, or the ga'al, for Naomi, because he was in the family of Naomi's husband, and thus he was responsible to redeem the land that Naomi would lose because the land was passed from man to man, from a man to his firstborn son. And so Boaz, because there were no sons of Naomi's husband, he then would then redeem the land and marry Ruth, and she would would bear a child. And we know the line of David came through Ruth. Now, usually the Gaal was a very rich family member. And his job was to deliver, rescue, or redeem property, or be an avenger of blood. We'll describe that in just a minute. Because this avenger of blood was to redeem the family of someone who died in the family because someone killed them. Hold that thought in your mind, because if you killed somebody, God knew the avenger blood was coming after you, and he knew that you needed a place to run to called the city of refuge, and this person was to flee there. And let me tell you why the word flee means to flee, because you got someone hot on your trail who wants you dead. And so God provided a place for this person to run to, and then the elders would meet them at the gate. And he would stand there, and he would deliver his case, and then they would bring him into the city, and they would keep him safe. God had very strict parameters in the book of Numbers as to who they could keep safe. Take a look as we go on in Scripture here. And when he flees, verse 4, to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally. Now, the law provided for that in Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. But he didn't hate 
him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. Now, what would happen is the person who accidentally killed someone would show up at the city and say, hey, I accidentally did something. I didn't mean to do it. Can you please protect me? The guy's hot on my trail. They would bring him into the city until there could be a fair trial. And if it was found that this guy hated the guy that died before he accidentally killed him, God said, this guy's guilty. That's what the law said. If there was any hatred in his heart, if any testimony would come forward that this guy hated this other guy, then this guy may have been guilty. Now take a look as we continue on um, in verse 7. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Abba, that is Hebron in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, so three on one side, three on the other, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness of the plains from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. So there were basically six cities, and all the Levites would reside there. And then within these six cities, they were only a day's journey away from anywhere in Israel. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them. I've uncircled this word that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood there before the congregation. Now, some of you have had a long day. You're like, praise God, we're done with Bible study. He got all the way through in the next 13 minutes. (laughs) We're not even close. There had six cities. And that way, if someone was caught and someone accidentally killed someone, they were only less than a day's journey away to get to the city of refuge. And the Bible says whoever ran there would be safe. Now what's amazing about this chapter is there are five things that God reveals about himself in order for him to be glorified. He reveals five things that he cares about that he wants us to put into practice in our life. Go back with me to verse 1. We're going to see the first one. The Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. I want you to write it down. Discipleship glorifies God. Discipleship glorifies God. God told Moses to tell Joshua in Numbers 35 in Deuteronomy chapter 19, he told Moses to tell Joshua to disciple Joshua in the word of God. Now God is reminding him of what Joshua discipled him in. Because discipleship, passing on faith to others, glorifies God. God cares about the fact that we are a part of discipleship. Uh, Let me express the point a little bit further in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 13. You'll see it on the screen. And he went up on the mountain. Jesus, after he spent the night in prayer, he comes down on the mountain and he calls to him those he himself wanted And they came to him. What a great word. 
Jesus wasn't forced to pick these 12 miserable men. He wasn't forced. As Gerald Irwin has said, they were the disciples, not the apostles, okay? These guys were miserable. They, they, Jesus called them a faithless generation. He called them a perverse generation. But Jesus, the Bible says in Mark chapter 3, the Holy Spirit wanted us to know he wasn't forced to pick these disciples because God told him to. He wanted to have disciples Because he knew God's way and he wanted to do God's will. You see, he knew God's word and he wanted to do it. Now keep that in mind. Because it's later on in Matthew chapter 28 that Jesus would tell the disciples something so important. Go therefore and say it with me, make disciples. Do we want to be a part of that? Do we want to be a part of that? Now, you're here on a Thursday night because you want to be a part of it. But I'm going to take this a little bit deeper because Paul writes a letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And I want you to hear how much Paul wanted to follow the example of Jesus and glorify God. And he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. You'll see it on the screen. And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let me tell you what Paul says. Timothy, you and I traveled around a lot together. You and I were alone together, just like Jesus was alone with his disciples. And I ministered to you things about the word of God. Mano e mano, one-on-one. We were together and I was witnessing the truth of God's word to you because I wanted to, Timothy. So the challenge for us to glorify God is, are you being discipled? Well, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I know John 3.16. Are you being discipled? I am. I have three guys in my life that are discipling me. And they're much older than me. And they're pouring into me. But guess what? I've got guys under me that I'm discipling, and I'm pouring into them. You see, I want to do this because I want to glorify God. So I'm being discipled, and I'm discipling others. Are you ready to glorify God? Secondly, I want you to see something, what God cares about. Maybe you'll write it down. Number two, protecting the sanctity of life glorifies God. Protecting the sanctity of life glorifies God. You see, the sanctity of life is very important to God. He cares about life. So much so, he gives this innocent person a place to run to so that unnecessary blood is not shed. Let me tell you why. Because God cares about the sanctity and protecting the sanctity of life. Now let me tell you. These six cities, they were cities of the Levites. So God took out of the nation of Israel, he took from them six cities. Now, he gave them the land. So if anybody had a problem with it, it was God who gave them the land in the first place. And so God 
asked for a tithe back of the land so that they would be good stewards. And he gave this land to the Levites. These were the cities of refuge. So when an innocent person would come running to a Levitical city and they're trying to not get killed by the avenger of blood, it was the Levites' job to protect the person that they accepted into their city. Now imagine. Imagine how hot and heavy the scene at the gate must have been when the living brother showed up and said, give him to me. He just killed my brother. Give him to me now. Now imagine how tough these Levites had to be. Think of all the emotion. Think of all the anger of the avenger of blood. And you just killed his brother. And he wants to get that guy. And he's got a responsibility in the family to make sure that that guy is dead. Nobody's going to stop me from being the avenger of blood. The Levites will. And just think how tough they must have been to protect the person in their care. Now, church, I want you to hear something. According to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus has made us kings and priests to the God, to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion. In some sense, we're like the new Levite. And as the church... It's our job to actively protect the innocent from being killed. And can I tell you, this is why the church is pro-life. It's not a political stance. It's not a conservative right-wing Republican stance. It's a spiritual stance to be pro-life because God cares about protecting the sanctity of life. It gives God glory to protect the sanctity of life. Take a look at this picture. No wonder in Psalm 139, God says we are fearfully and wonderfully made that he knit us together in our mother's womb. Now, you take a look at that picture, and there should be no surprise to you that John the Baptist at six months would leap in his mother's womb. That's not a gathering of tissue. That's a full living human being. No wonder, thank God for 4D, that we can take a look at that and go, wow, it really does make sense that John the Baptist jumped in the womb. Do you know this? At five to six weeks from conception, we can detect a heartbeat. Yet do you know that most of the abortions committed by adolescents, that's right, I said adolescents in our country, are between the weeks seven and nine. Do you know that in our country, that adult abortions, two-thirds of those adult abortions happen before nine weeks? 
And according to the CDC, in 2019, which was the last recorded, there were 630,000 legal abortions in our country. God cares about that. He cares a lot about protecting the life of the innocent. It's why in Proverbs he says, speak out for those who don't speak for themselves. In Exodus chapter 21, let me tell you where this is most exemplified. God gives a a story. He gives an illustration. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to let you know. You can write it down in your notes. It's Exodus 21 verse 22. We see this exemplified. God says there's two guys in a fight. And one of them accidentally hits a pregnant woman and the baby dies. He said, that man deserves capital punishment. Do you know that it is the only case where God requires capital punishment for an accidental death? Let me explain what Wayne Grudem says. He's a theologian of our day and he says this, God placed a higher premium on protecting the life of an unborn child and a pregnant mother more than any other life in Israelite history of the time. What a profound statement. Now it's important at this point to stop for just a moment and realize God cares about the sanctity of life. And protecting the sanctity of life is something that God really gets glorified in. But it's also important to remember something and to realize something that God cares about the sanctity of your life. And just like he wants to protect the life of an unborn child, he wants to protect your life. And so what he does is that he sent his son so that if any of us have been involved with any kind of sin that doesn't glorify God, listen to what God does. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not some. To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're going to see this unfold in just a moment because it's number three. I want you to write it down. We see in Joshua chapter 20 that God wants to be glorified and being just glorifies God. Let me explain. Being just glorifies God. God opens the door for there to be a just trial by the law in the city of refuge. The guy could come running, he could declare his case, and he was kept safe until there was a official trial. And so they would stand in front and they would have this trial. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 19 gives an example of someone to be declared innocent. God actually gives a story and he says, listen, let's say two guys go out and they're chopping wood out in the forest. And they're chopping wood in Deuteronomy 19 and all of a sudden the axe head flies off and hits one guy in the head and he dies. Well, if there was no hatred in the guy's heart, then that guy is innocent, But in Numbers 35, God details those that are going to be found guilty. He says, if there's any testimony that the guy who is alive had any hatred in his heart for the guy that is now dead, and if he picked up any stone or any piece of wood, or if he picked up any kind of iron and he killed the guy with it, then that guy is definitely guilty, and he's got to suffer the consequence of capital punishment. That's justice. 
So God determines by the law who's innocent. And God determines by the law who is guilty. It sounds like the great United States of America when we go to a trial. But I need to communicate something. And it's very important for us to recognize this. There's a difference between justice and fairness. There's a difference between justice and fairness. I saw it with my kids all the time. That's not fair. He won't let me use his toy. Well, it's his toy, so it's actually unfair of you to ask for it. You see, fairness could be arbitrary if we try to compare fairness and justice. So let's understand the difference between justice and fairness, because God is just. God is just. That makes all of his decisions right. That makes all of his decisions good. That makes all of his decisions absolutely true. In fact, in Psalm 89, verse 14, Psalm 89, verse 14, the Bible says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Now, you have to understand what this verse is communicating. The foundation of God is righteousness and justice. He does everything right, and he does everything justly, and he does it through mercy and truth. So he's just. In fact, Moses would declare in Deuteronomy chapter 32, all his ways are just. He's so just, he cannot overlook sin. But if he was fair, then all of us would have to die. That would be fair because you're the sinner. And the penalty of sin, to be fair, is that each one of us in this room would have to die and be separated from God. But the Bible says he's not fair. The Bible says he's just. Now remember, sin is a price. But mercy and righteousness go before him. So what did he do? Jesus paid the price of our sin because God is just. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, because the just one died for the unjust, we get to be with God. This doesn't seem fair for Jesus, does it? He was, the un- he was the just. It doesn't seem fair that Jesus, the just, would die for us. No, no, no. Because fairness has nothing to do with God. He's just. And his justice always includes righteousness. It always includes mercy. And it always includes truth. And whatever decision he makes, there's good news for all of us. And the good news is this that no matter what we've done, the way that we can glorify God's justice is to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. That glorifies God. That glorifies God. Now, some of us, like Habakkuk, we struggle struggle with the justice of God because we think God should be fair. Now, I ask you to turn in your Bible to Habakkuk. Turn there with me if you would. I hope you found it. Habakkuk chapter 1, and Habakkuk is having a problem. Let me explain what the prophet's problem is. 
he sees nothing but wickedness all around him. And he's asking God a very important question. Would you take a look at verse 3? Why do you show me iniquity? I see it everywhere. And cause me to see trouble. For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. You see, the prophet gets a little confused with fairness and justice. And he actually calls fairness justice. But God is just. And he says, listen, there's wickedness all around me, and I can't believe that wickedness is prospering. Listen to what God answers and responds to him. Would you look indeed at verse 5, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded. For I'm going to work and work in your days, which would not, you wouldn't believe, though it were told you, for I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Look at verse 7. They are terrible and dreadful. Look at verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Look at uh, uh, verse 9. They all come for violence. Habakkuk doesn't get the answer he wants. He says, why are there so many wicked people around me? And God says, don't worry about it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to come and destroy you. Okay, that was not the answer I was looking for. That doesn't seem fair, God. Look what he says in verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. In other words, how could you look at the Chaldeans and you can't look at their wickedness or look on at wickedness? Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? He's saying, listen, the Jews are more righteous than the Babylonians. Why would you use the Babylonians to destroy us? Because God is just. And he lets the prophet know, don't worry about it. I'm going to judge the Babylonians. But there's a responsibility that I have for you. Take a look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He says this. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. In other words, the proud person doesn't understand the justice of God. But he says this. But the just shall live by faith. We may not understand the justice of God. And so God says, trust me. You may not get it at first. You may not understand why your wicked boss is making more money than you and living the life of luxury and you are living in an apartment and he's living in PV. And you might be going, why in the world is this person doing so well and so wicked? God says, the just shall live by faith. Trust me. I'll give you an example. It's Revelation chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. It's the fifth seal. And the martyrs during the tribulation time, they cry out to God, How long, O Lord? When were you going to redeem us? This doesn't seem fair, they say. And God says, you got a little bit longer. In other words, he says, trust me. And then one of the bold judgment comes. And the Bible says that he pours out blood on the earth because he's just. He always balances the scales. And what he's saying to the, to the world, if you wanted the blood of my martyrs, I'm just. Here's all the blood you can have. And he turns all the water of the earth to blood. He's just. 
And it's not till Revelation chapter 20 that these martyrs are crying out and God says, have faith in me, that they're giving a white robe and they serve and they rule and they reign in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. That's why he says, the just shall live by faith. And let me tell you what he says to each one of us. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, he's shown you what's good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do, say it, justly? He requires it of us. He wants us to make the right decisions. He wants us to be just. And the only way that we're going to do that is that we know the decision that God would make and we make that decision. And even if like Habakkuk, We're struggling with the decision that God wants us to make. Imagine the avenger of blood. He's standing at the city of refuge. Give me that person that killed my brother. And the elders say, no way, because God has told us what to do with this person who's come to us. Well, the avenger of blood don't feel it. The avenger of blood wants vengeance. But the Levites were to hold to the truth of God's word. And the best decision that we can make, the most just decision that we can make, is always default to God's word. So if you're missionary dating, and you are going to win this person for Christ, when God says, don't be unequally yoked, you're making a bad decision. Let's go on, number four. Number four, we see in Joshua chapter 20 how God wants to be glorified, Correcting culture glorifies God. Correcting culture glorifies God. Let me explain. The avenger of blood was a designated family member to avenge the death of a loved one. It was common in the culture, and it was common in not just the Israeli culture, but in all the cultures of the world at that time. Let me t- there was no police There was no investigative person. There was no court. There was no trial. The family was the judge and the jury. And if someone killed someone, the avenger of blood's responsibility was to go and kill that person. Now, this practice was actually established by the Lord in Genesis 9-6 to Noah. God tells Noah, whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed. But something happens from Noah to Moses. So God's got to step in with the law. Something happened from Noah to Moses, and we understand this, because vengeance is a powerful emotion. And people needed to be regulated. Let me explain what happens. Someone accidentally gets killed. And now, it's no longer that person dies. I'm going to kill your whole family. I'm going to wipe your existence out. You killed my favorite younger brother, and I got 15 of them, and you killed my favorite one. So I'm wiping your whole family out. No, no, that's not what God said. God said it was just like one for one. But he knew humanity. 
And humanity, no matter what God says, we're always going to want more. We're always going to, just like Adam and Eve, want what God doesn't want for us. So humanity got out of control, and now these vengeance killings around the world was not just a law, but it was a mandate, and people needed to be regulated. So in Leviticus chapter 24, God regulates it. He says, no, no, let me communicate to you, Israeli nation. It's only an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. You can't take any more than, you can't take two teeth. If they only knocked out one, you can only knock out one tooth. If they took one eye, you can only, you can't take two, you can only take one. And what God does is he regulates it because vigilantism was out of control. Retribution killing, they were killing the entire family. And the culture needed a holy correction. And so God corrects them with the city of refuge. Jesus did the same thing. When Jesus comes on the scene, the Jewish nation, they had changed the whole law of God and made it the commandments of men. And the culture needed a holy correction. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard, here's the culture, but I say to you, I'm giving you a new culture. I'm going to give you a kingdom culture. I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to go the second mile. I want you to lend to someone not expecting a return. And I want you to, here's the big one, love your enemy. You've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I need to step in and correct the culture because you've so moved away from God's heart. It was never about killing someone. It was about not killing them in the first place. That's God's heart. And the disciples took this to heart. And in Acts chapter 17, do you know the reputation of the disciples? They were turning the world upside down. They were culture changers because glorifying God involves correcting the culture. Finally, number five, and here's where we close. We see in Joshua chapter 20, one of the most important truths of this chapter. I want you to write it down. Providing refuge glorifies God. Providing refuge glorifies God. Now, I want to review several of the facts about the city of refuge. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull from the various Deuteronomies and Numbers and Leviticus so that we can understand the full context of the city of refuge. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 19 tells us Make sure there's a road that's been kept clear with signs on it so people know how to get there. Deuteronomy 19. Make sure there's a clear road so that if someone has an accident, accidental death, they know exactly how to get to the city of refuge. Numbers 35. Well, Numbers 35 lets us know anyone in Israel, just like Joshua 20, Anyone in Israel can run to the city of refuge, not just for the Israelites, but for anyone, whoever was living in the land of Israel, could be kept safe if they ran to the city of refuge. Here's the other thing about the city of refuge. Do you know that people don't die Monday through Friday, 9 to 5? Do you know that? I don't know if you know that. As a pastor, I know that. Because you'll call me at 2 a.m. You'll call me at 4 a.m. You'll call me at 6 a.m. 
And what am I supposed to respond and say, um, operating hours, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. You're on the phone crying. <gasps> I can't believe my dog just died and I'm so upset. Pastor, I need some ministry right now. Call me back at 9. <laughs> I tell people that come on church staff, are you sure? Are you sure? Because let me tell you something. When you come on church staff... Ministry, like the the Levitical cities of refuge, is 24-7. I go to Bed Bath & Beyond. There you are. (laughs) I go to Costco in Long Beach. There you are. (laughs) I go to CVS. There you are. And I love the way you look in my bag to make sure. I love the way you look in my cart to see what is he buying at CVS. Oh, got some Advil in there. Got a headache, Pastor? I love you guys. And no matter where I go, I go to Chevron. I was at Chevron a month ago. Pastor Chet! Do I look at the guy and go, it's after five, dude? The gates always had to be open because if the avenger of blood caught up to them before they got inside the city, there was going to be a huge problem. The gates were always open. And the amazing thing is the innocent person was protected within the walls until the death of the high priest. Now, I want you to keep that in mind and turn with me to Hebrews. It's the last area of Scripture that we're going to turn to. I want you to keep that in mind as we turn to Hebrews, all of those important facts about the city of refuge. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, we begin to understand a little bit about how the city of refuge reminds us of someone. I'm going to pick it up there in verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope yet set before us. This hope, our hope in Jesus Christ, we have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, letting us know who our hope is in, having become, listen carefully, High priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, maybe you've got all the facts of the cities of refuge in mind. I'm going to remind you. Jesus said this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He made the road very clear. There is no other way to the Father except through me. He describes himself as the gate of salvation in John chapter 10. I'm the door. I'm the gate. I'm the only way that you can come in. And he says this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all, not some, everyone in the entire world, because God so loved the world. He didn't pick and choose. He said, come to me all you who labor. And he makes salvation open to anyone who runs to the city of refuge. Jesus. And what I love about Jesus, he's available 
and accessible no matter where you are or no matter what time of day it is. In John chapter 6, he says, anyone who comes to me, I will by no means cast away. I don't send you to voicemail. When you come, I'm there. I had an assistant, and her brother got saved when he was high and drunk. No one believed it but Jesus. And he's following Jesus today with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had just finished smoking weed, and he realized, I am a sinner. And drunk, he drops on his knees and he says, Jesus, if you're listening. And you know what Jesus said? Here I am. Here I am. It doesn't, mer- it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter when you call. He's always available. Always available. And I need to let you know something. You had to stay in the city of refuge till the high priest died. So the high priest died. Can I remind you of something? Hebrews chapter 6, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our high priest who died on the cross and rose from the grave. And now, because he conquered death, he lives forever. Forever. You see, this is a picture of the old and the new covenant. Let me explain. The old covenant, and under the old, only the innocent could come into the uh, uh, city of refuge. Only the innocent could remain in the city of refuge and only the innocent could be protected from the avenger of blood. And they were kept safe as long as they obeyed the law and they stayed within the walls. Now, if they went outside of the law and they went outside of the city, they were fair game. So in a sense, under the law, they were under bondage. But when the high priest died, they were set free. And that's why Jesus says, whom the Son has set free, he's free indeed. We've been set free from the law and the new covenant. We've been saved from any punishment. And when the avenger of blood comes knocking on our door, I can't believe you did that. The Holy Spirit reminds us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus brought a better covenant. And the better covenant that he brought brought is this. Not only does he open a door for an innocent person, of which none of us are innocent, his better covenant opens the door for the most guilty So you saw the picture of the baby, and for some of you, that stirred something in you. Jesus says, doesn't matter what you've done. I'm here. I'm here now. And under the new covenant, Jesus paid the price for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, church, how does this apply to us? Listen carefully, and here's where I close it up. We're the body of Christ. So Calvary Chapel, South Bay, I've got a question for us. 
are we a city of refuge? You see, the church should be the people, no matter where you are, and this should be the place that anyone can run to to get refuge. And I'm wondering, is there anyone here that needs refuge today? Or maybe you're online and you need to run to refuge. The church says, like Jesus, come. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, I come before you. And I am so grateful that you brought a better covenant and that the guilty can come. And that you protect the guilty when we confess our sin. So, Holy Spirit, would you move in this place tonight? In Jesus' name. Hey, church. Tonight, it's time to run to the city refuge. And here's what we're going to do. During this song, we're going to open up this altar to be the place where we say, come. There was a woman who came to Jesus. She was a prostitute. Jesus is sitting down and he's having dinner. Now just imagine. You're sitting down with the religious people of your day and this scantily clad woman comes running up to you, crying at your feet. You can only imagine what the guys were saying. Oh, we got Jesus playing around with this. We know who this woman is. Doesn't he know what kind of woman this is? Jesus didn't care. He let the woman cry. Then he tells a story. Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. This woman, she's much more righteous than you. And he looked at the woman and she heard something that maybe you need to hear tonight. Your sins are You got some turmoil going on because you're choosing to live a different life. You're not glorifying God in some area of your life. And tonight, God says, come. 24-7, tonight's your night. You might even be a believer. And you're struggling with glorifying God. Tonight's your night to make it right with God. And he says, if you confess your sin, John is speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of sin and to cleanse us from all. So I'm opening up this altar. Pastor Pat's going to join me up here. And we want you to come and make your life right with God so as you walk out of here, you glorify God in all things, not some things. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. 
If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.